You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. He could never tell if exhaustion bred the automatic thought of production and consequence or whether the habit itself did the tiring. Either way, it had become incessant. As an undergraduate studying philosophy, his first challenge had been skepticism, how the mind could know with certainty that objects existed. By the time he went to law school, he'd settled happily on a social, pragmatic answer, that to believe otherwise led to absurd results. These days, much of the world seemed drained of presence to him. These days, much of the world seemed drained of presence to him, not by his doubt of anything's existence, but because objects, even people sometimes, seemed to dissipate into their causes, their own being crowded out by what made them so. Over the gentle surf, he heard the hum of the air-conditioning vents high on the roof of the hotel, and his brain once more ran the stimulus to ground. The steel smelted from ore mined on some island of the Indonesian archipelago, forged into sheets on the hydraulic presses of a foundry outside Seoul, shipped across the Pacific to sit in a warehouse in Long Beach, where it showed up in the Commerce Department's numbers on inventory, ordered, packaged, trucked over the plains to an Atlanta wholesaler, bought by a contractor in Miami who stood with a foreman directing workers riveting the vents together, operating the crane that raised into place the engine, itself assembled with parts from ten countries or more, at a Maytag plant out in Iowa or perhaps Mexico, calibrated the precise wattage required to pump cooled air into the hundreds of sleeping chambers where its faintly medicinal scent blanketed the slumbering travelers, and allowing each step from the miner's lowly wage to the construction by loans, lines of credit, borrowed money, the vast creationary incentive of compound interest, blind artificer of the modern world. Adam Hazlett is the author of the short story collection You Are Not a Stranger Here, a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize and the National Book Award. His new novel is Union Atlantic. Thank you for joining me, Adam. Thanks for having me. Well, who knew? Bankers have hearts. <laughs> well, I'm, uh, I'm actually glad to hear you say that. The most, uh, most responses have been that the, uh, that's a story of good versus evil, but that was not my, my aim. You invested this story in two wonderfully complicated characters that you've handcrafted from scratch. Tell us about the process of creating Doug Fanning and Charlotte Graves. They're so wonderful. Well, thank you. Um, the uh, I always start with the characters. I don't know where the plot is going. And so uh, with Doug Fanning, it was actually... Uh, kind of accidental because I was at first writing about Jeffrey Holland, who's the head of Union Atlantic Bank and is the CEO. And But just the more and more I wrote about him, the more I realized that his interior life wasn't that interesting to me, that he was a politician, essentially, a kind of corporate politician. And uh, the guy one step beneath him who really had his fingers on the on the pulse of the the bank was the person who was more complicated to me. So I first discovered him in a sense or invented him when I was writing a scene about Jeffrey Holland and this guy walked in the door and I thought he's more interesting than, than Jeffrey. And from there, it was a lot of writing 
around to find out different parts of who he was. So the Vincennes section, the opening prologue where he's on a naval ship back in 88, was written really independently of the rest of the book. Um, and then there were chapters about, you know, his when he was younger. And it, it was a, it's a cumulative process, and you go through a lot of material before you arrive at the, the essential parts. Um, and Charlotte was similar. Um, like Doug, I began with her in solitude. She lives on her own in this crumbling house that her family's owned for, for decades. And um, she is beginning, her mind is beginning to go a little bit. And she's very angry at her neighbor for, uh, for at Doug for having built this house. Um, but really, to me, the way to discover her and the way to continue in her voice is to discover the rhythm with with her and with each character. How does the rhythm create a kind of musical argument beneath the facts so that the reader is getting more than just facts and is actually getting a an entire sense of what that person's mind is like? Now, there's two things that I want to pull out of that. One is the musical sense, and this really does seem like a very symphonic novel kind of um, with all these different voices blending beautifully. But you also talk about something interestingly, too, about the facts versus the the feelings. And, mm-hmm. and I think this is a, a, a theme that runs through the novel, and, and Charlotte is really your... your uh, Bully pulpit for the for this for this uh-huh. perception. Talk about that kind of perception and, and how it, I think it informs a lot of your fiction. Yeah, well, there's a I, when I when my first love of literature came from not whole books and not whole short stories, but individual lines uh, that I would be struck by, or actually that my older brother would read aloud to me. And he'd say, isn't this a great paragraph? Isn't that a great sentence? And it would be the sound of the sentence that was what was exciting as much as the context. And so, uh, sorry? Whose sentences? Oh, I mean, he would read Nietzsche or Proust or, you know, whatever, whatever he was reading at the time. But but he, he did have a, a penchant for rhetorical, writers. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, James Baldwin is one of my favorites, and he's a very rhetorical writer. So, but that, of course, can be a heavy voice over the course of an entire book. So, um, in a way, Charlotte as a character is someone who has that higher sort of rhetorical register, particularly in the form of the dogs that are speaking to her, Mm -hmm. one in in the voice of Cotton Mather, the other in Malcolm X's voice. And I think the other part for me about her having a view is that I'm a political junkie myself. I'm always following politics and the news. And often in contemporary fiction, it can seem as though that uh, world of events that we're all living through is kind of just cut off and we're in a world where it's just relationships that are going on and the rest of the world is not intruding as much. And I wanted to set characters in a world as kind of messy and... Uh, fervid with with political stuff as our, our our world actually is right now, and that leads to the other thing that I thought was what you you've got a crystal ball. Uh, well, the financial stuff. Yeah, I mean th- that he was actually the first character, Henry Graves, mm-hmm. who um, I have set here as a character as the president of the New York Fed. I first wrote. Uh, a chapter of his in 19, 
1998, I think, or 1999. You do have a crystal ball. Then. No, well, no, it was but this. It, it's I think at the time anybody for the last 10 years before the crash, people who were paying attention and thinking about the global financial structure realized that it was an unstable thing. And there, what fascinated me was that, as now has you know we've all read in the news and seen, that when it comes down to it, at the very most important moments. It's not actually about law and regulation, but it is about a very few number of powerful men in a room in the middle of the night uh, based making decisions that are informed by longstanding relationships and a kind of milieu that they live in um, and work in. And so the New York Fed's where that takes place. And so it fascinated me because I was fascinated by the idea of how the minds of people in those positions of anonymous power work. Um, one thing I kept in mind in writing it was a comment that Mailer had made, I don't know, a while, a while ago, probably 20 years ago or something, that post-war American fiction had taught us more about the little guy than about the minds of the powerful. Um, and part of me wanted to investigate that. When you investigated it, was it strictly in the manner of just sitting down and writing from Henry's point of view or 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 um uh the the boss man's point of view yeah. uh, or did you actually go out and and talk to some of these people I didn't talk to the uh, CEOs or the head of the Fed I did I do have uh one friend who works at the Fed and mainly I read a lot about the finance world and about previous crises, uh, the collapse of a hedge fund in the late 90s that the New York Fed became involved in. And um, and then I just also just read the business section of the paper for seven years. You know, I mean, I just, I, it's sort of like learning a language for those who are not specialists. Obviously, there are lots of people who who work in that and know it all the time. But um, I, I, was, I was just interested to get, to, to teach myself something about it and then give the reader as much as they needed to feel as though they were there without overloading it. You never, when you write a book, want to overload the reader with information just because you happen to have collected it. This is a, a talent that you have particularly mastered in all of your fiction. One of the things I think that makes your all of your work, your short stories and this novel, so appealing is your ability to write beautiful, kick ass prose <laughs> but doesn't feel like it's overwritten it just mm-hmm. gets you get right there but never go too far mm. uh couldn't is this something that drops off the end of your pen or is this the result oh of- <laughs> heavens no no would that it did um no i think that that what you're describing is the is the result of uh, a lot of editing and a process of cutting back so that what I'm left with is what I think is necessary. So I, I have at least twice as much, if not more, material you know, left on my hard drive than what's in the book. Um, so I'm, I'm always wanting to, first and foremost, keep true to the rhythm of whatever scene I'm in. Um, but once, that, once I feel like I'm doing that, I, I do feel that you can get a lot from the effect of a certain concision, you know, if, if especially if your readers paying attention, if your readers really with you, then there's something sometimes bracing about making each word and each sentence, uh, you know, as tight as you can. 
Now, uh, let's talk about uh, the lives of some of these characters. It seems to me that, in a way, you must have to almost live the life of somebody like Doug Fanning, eh? and you don't seem that quite that heartless, although he's not entirely heartless, is he? And, and that's what's so fascinating about this guy. Yeah, I think you put a, some of yourself into every character, obviously, because you, I wouldn't be able to live with the person that long in my head if I didn't have some uh, point of of at least sympathy, if not empathy, um, or identification. And so Doug is a very driven, ambitious, in many ways angry person. And it seems to me that one of the, or two of the forces that we've been living with most centrally over the last 10 years in this country are militarism and hyper-capitalism. And to me, the emotion that runs beneath both of those is a kind of male anger. In In the military realm, it's more open. Uh, in finance, it's more abstracted. But he's the someone who participates in both those spheres and has that kind of anger. And I think Probably a lot of us have it in smaller ways. It's just when you write a character, you can take an attribute and really imagine your way into what would happen if if a personality was was um, driven by those by that feeling. Now, um, you you have a, a kind of a parallel character to him, Nate, who who it. Has it comes from a similar background? Could you talk about creating the backstories of these characters? Does this happen uh, when you create you'd create a Doug? I would presume first. Am I correct? Um, on that? Yeah, I mean Nate came last of the main characters in the book. Um, I knew there would be someone of his age and an innocent of some kind, but I didn't really know what the what his history would be or how he would come to know Charlotte, uh, which eventually, who eventually comes to know as a, as a tutor because uh, he comes to get lessons, um, and there for how he would get to know Doug. But those things I worked out. But it wasn't really until late in the process that I gave in to, I think, being as open and honest and... Um, in a sense, exposed as I was in writing Nate. There was a certain shame to be overcome in writing the character of Nate, um, which I think is just what's necessary for writing to be worthwhile to me is that the writer has gone through some process of overcoming, you know? I, I love that idea that, that I guess, humiliation yeah. help, drives you. <laughs> well, it's it's not. I, I mean, humiliations may be a little strong. I just think that they're. To me, the the writing that I find most compelling is when I feel that the writers left some blood on the floor, so to speak, at the end of the day. And it certainly did for me to write those scenes between Doug and Nate. That they were painful scenes to write, and they were the scenes I avoided writing for the longest time. Now, one of the things I think that uh, runs through all of your fiction, the short stories in this book, um, is it's very funny. Ah, <laughs> oh, well, I'm glad to glad to hear that. I, it, the, this sense of humor is on the dark side, like yeah. pitch black, but <laughs> <laughs> it's still there. Um, 
when you're writing this, do you experience the humor in the prose? I mean, it seems it's not some. It's certainly not forced. But I, I, I mean, what I'm wondering is, do you laugh and go, "Oh my God, this guy is this is kind of funny." Uh, I mean, I'm aware of of moments where I'm enjoying the writing of a character who's, in a sense, enjoying themselves. So I mean, writing some of these scenes with Nate and his high school crew, it's it's hijinks kind of stuff. And it's fun for me to write it. There's a pleasure in it because they are actually experiencing pleasure, complicated kind of barbed pleasure while they're uh, hanging out with each other. So so those scenes are fun for me to write too. I don't, I don't know if I'm laughing as much as, as uh, kind of looking in. We also have here uh, Charlotte Graves, and Charlotte Graves is, has some, I think, really classic grants in this book. Yeah, and in fact, mo- most of who she is seems to devolve from from the you know her speeches. As, as, so, talk about discovering this character, uh, kind of I guess between the bouts of speechifying. Um, well, she, as I said, starts. On her own. I mean, the reader meets her on her own, and that's how she's been for the last 30 years. And so she's someone who has a very intense interior life. She has these ideas shooting around in her head. She's passionate, liberal humanist. She believes in art, literature, and philosophy with a kind of religious zeal. And she sees much of her world being uh, wiped away. Um, and so... The question I had was how to get at her and how to portray her and do justice to those ideas um, while still basically being involved with – the reader would be involved with her as a human being. And so I began in the first chapter with a fairly – close description of exactly how she was experiencing the coming of these voices from the dogs and how that was uh, emerging. Um, And then the rest of it, I think you learn most about her when she's with the other characters. So because everything's from a certain point of view, a certain character's point of view, when Nate comes onto the scene and goes to her house to be tutored, suddenly the reader sees her from a very, sees her from the outside and sees the condition the house is in and this room that's just covered with books um, and the disarray she's living in. So it's a sort of point and counterpoint that the reader gets to know her through. Now, there's lots of really great, interesting ideas rattling around in this book. Um, and... and one of the things I think you really discover in this book, um, it, a lot of this book is about power. You talked about yeah. you know, militarism and, yeah. uh, you know, capitalism gone mad. Um, and, but what your perception of power is so interesting because we've always heard, you know, absolute power corrupts absolutely. But I think with this book, what you the point you make is that abstract power abstracts absolutely. (laughs) Yeah, that's a very good way of putting it. I mean, I think what interested me at first about the Fed and then, you know, about the whole banking stuff once I got into it was that people in an executive suite somewhere could make a decision based purely on numbers in front of them. But that would result in setting a kind of misery index for people out there in the world and that that's the society we live in. We live in an administrative 
system in which power is abstracted and the people that wield often the most direct influence over how you and I live our lives are not the president and the head of the Senate and the people who are in the news 24 hours a day. It's people we've never heard of. I mean, now, of course, we've heard about some of the people at the Fed because of how everything happened. But before, they were largely anonymous. And still, to this day, I don't think most people really, you know, get all the details of how the Fed works or the financial system because it's it's like learning a foreign language. It's it's just simply more complicated than than most people should have to understand. And one point I think you make really beautifully is the the difference between somebody looking at a radar blip that may be an airliner or may be an enemy action, as uh, James Bond would put it, mm-hmm. is not really that different from somebody looking at a sheet of a column of numbers on a spreadsheet. Yeah, well, no, that's it's uh, it's gratifying to to have some of these connections made. I mean, it's the the the, the reason I decided in the end to put that prologue in was that it it did resonate with a lot of things that. Doug as a character was about. It's a kind of intrusion of American power into another part of the world. It's uh, not just an evil, I'm going to blast these people out of the sky. It's actually a moment where he sees what's going to happen. He makes a fairly cold calculation that I'm going to act in self-interest, as I think many of us would. It's not, I mean, if if a, sh- if a plane's sailing for you and you don't know what it is, what do you do? It's it's not so cut and dry, but what what's a little different about Doug is that he knows he's doing it and he's kind of okay with that. And he he also knows that he's pulling triggers out there on, on the foreign exchanges. Now, one of the things I think this book does very well is to take a uh, incredibly complicated uh, financial system and make it really seem transparent and do so in the context of what I would call an economic morality tale. Uh And and so Uh talk about um, making this first, making this really complicated system that, as you said, it's like learning another language. At the end of this book, I know what's going on here. And that's really special in and of itself. Yeah. Well, to me... The 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 goal was to take, as it would be in any story, to take the reader inside the world I want to describe. So the challenge then, if you're going into a place that's unfamiliar to you and to most of your readers, is how with what level of detail do you go? How far in detail do you go? And you don't and what I always want, because this is what I love in books that I read, is when you're sort of looking over the shoulder of the character to the world that they're operating in rather than having an authorial voice come down and instruct you on on you know this that or the other so the t- uh, to me the the interest was well so there's this guy he's the head of the New York Fed and in the middle of the night a bank's in trouble and he gets a phone call what is it like to pick up that phone and what does he talk about and what are his preoccupations and what pissed him off and all that kind of stuff and if if I write those scenes, then in a sense, I, as I'm writing them, and then hopefully the reader, is just sort of being a fly on the wall in a room that you know we're, none of us are usually in. Um, so that was the that was the challenge from the writing point of view, and I think more broadly, I was just fascinated by the idea of someone who had a kind of god's eye view on the economy because. We're so distracted. The, the the culture is so aggressively distracting to us from all the different kind of media that we take in. And it's often very difficult 
to stop and sort of imagine the relationship between these larger, powerful forces and our individual lives. I mean, everybody knows it's out there. It's just difficult to stop and try to try to put the two together. And so in a sense, something about a novel that is that it gives you space. It gives you kind of time and an openness where you might be able to imagine your way into that relationship between the macro and the micro. And I think you do a, a wonderful job. Novels like this, when you when I look at you know what this is about, it's just like all sorts of warning bells go off in my head. I mean, oh my God, we're going to have kind of superhero guys here. You know, they're going to be you know ripping off their their shoulder pads and and flying into the economic sunset, or they're going to be you know these scurvy venal wolves crawling <laughs> underneath the desks and doing yeah. horrible things. You really managed to both give us that God's eye view, but with a really human viewpoint. Talk about, you know, layering your characters and discovering your characters mm-hmm. and creating this kind of uh, a, a really agrocable uh, mm-hmm. perspective. Hmm. Well, it's tough. I think the 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 sort of true north that i stick to is always the sentence um so if the sentence that i'm writing seems to capture something as i said earlier not just in the facts but in the its rhythm then i feel as though i'm getting at some intangible thing so for instance when doug first gets into the office early in the book. He comes into Union Atlantic, the tower, and we see him sort of meeting his secretary, who's this woman that he's taken to bed because he just wants to be able to make sure he controls her outside of the normal channels and all this sort of stuff. It's, it's, I'm always trying to get it. What, what, what would the language be and what would the tenor and the quality of uh, discussion be between people that gives you the human texture, even when they're in this this bigger context. And I think that's one of the things that there's a point l- later in the book where Charlotte says to her brother, Henry, you know, you have to recognize that something bad's happening here, that the building of this mansion and the cutting down of these trees, it stands for something bigger. And she said, she says, if, because if you didn't believe that, then you wouldn't believe anymore that language is important and that it's not just pure tactics, you know, and and I think that one of the experiences that many of us had over the last 10 years of living under the Bush administration and uh, the Iraq war is that there was a perversion of language so deep that precisely what was being said was what was untrue. And that has larger moral consequences if you divorce language so far from truth. Um, so, to me, writing is about really trying to do the opposite. It's trying to make, trying to tie language into the truth of at least, you know, how my experience of the world and, and what I imagine about others. You do a wonderful job, too, of drawing the parallel between the buildup to the Iraq war and what was also being built up at the same time, the buildup to the global financial meltdown that followed <laughs> shortly thereafter. And I think that was really uh, sublimely done. Oh, well, thank you. It's, it's, uh, there are certain little echoes that I was conscious of. I mean, for instance, Doug at the bank 
uh, is in charge of foreign operations, but also the Office of Special Plans, which is the also the name of the uh, department in the Pentagon that Douglas Fife ran that was essentially uh, responsible for uh, planning the Iraq War. And, and Doug's strategy within the bank is to, as he calls it, stovepipe information straight from the trading floor up to him at the top of the bank rather than through all the different registers of um, professional evaluation, which is exactly what was being happening happening with intelligence, um, going from from gathering straight to Dick Cheney's office. So, I mean, these things I try to, I, I, I can tell you that now, but I, you know, they're, they're not foregrounded, but they are, I, I was conscious of, of some of the, of the echoes of a certain, a certain kind of, um, take no prisoners, damn procedure, I know the result I want mentality. Now, uh, th- this novel too is interesting because even though it speaks so directly to us at this moment in the year 2010, mm-hmm. it's set, uh, you know, about eight years earlier. Um, and one of the things that this novel has all over it is is history. I mean, Charlotte's yeah. a history teacher, and there's you have a lot of interest in history, don't you? Both personal and national. Yeah, no, that's that's true. I mean, the the writer that I first fell in love with uh, was Faulkner. And uh, as, as I'm sure many of your listeners have heard, the, his famous quote about the past isn't dead, it's not even past. So the, the, the idea of characters as people who are thrown out of their, their past, their, their, their present action is an expression of the things that plague them, the things that haunt them. Um, and Charlotte in a way, as someone who is not just that way as a personal matter, but she's, as an intellectual matter, very aware and conscious and concerned about history's broader sweep and where we're headed uh, as a culture. So she's, she's in a way, um, I thought of her in a sense as the decay of the American liberal tradition, the sort of old American liberalism. And the two voices in her head uh, from the dogs, Cotton Mather and Malcolm X, I think of as, in a way, the superego of American liberalism. On the one hand, you have this self-castigating religious voice of Cotton Mather who's saying, do more, do more, you're never, you're never good enough. And on the other hand, there's this primary guilt over slavery that Malcolm X kind of evokes. So those th- those seem to me like the mad voices of liberalism that are beginning to bite her, you know. And this uh, brings up another, you have a kind of a, I think a fantastic way of looking at the world in so that it seems rather haunted and, mm. and it, your vision of the world is, our world does not behave to the laws that we cleave to the laws that we think it cleaves to. Yeah. No, that's, that's, uh, I think that's right. I think also that one of the tasks of fiction for me is to slow the attention down and get at uh, certain senses that we all have of the world, but that because of the speed we live at, we just skip over. And a lot of those are 
the lacuna of sadness or grief or sometimes jubilation, but that we generally just sort of drive right over because we're moving so quickly. And fiction, to me, does the opposite. It's, it takes you into a consciousness that is being observed from moment to moment. That's why it seems to me it's the literature is better than any other medium at delivering human consciousness. I mean, there are, I love other mediums, but to, to get at the inside of how a mind works and thinks, there's nothing, there's nothing better than fiction. You also talked about the voices, and this brings up a, a subject that many of us are interested in, American dogs who <laughs> speak better, live better, eat better than most people on this world. Um, I hadn't thought of it that way, um, but uh, they 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 are well treated by her, though they they become a menace as time goes on. Um, yeah, they're they're loud and insistent, and uh, and really they're they are the her own reading and her own past coming back to her. Uh, in an unwelcome form. So I, 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 both she and Doug, in a sense, are absolutists. They're, they're both people who cling with fervency to their beliefs. Um, and it just takes very different forms. In Doug, it's very masculine. It's very macho and controlled and locked down. And with Charlotte, the she's her mind is beginning to go a little bit, and so the the, the membrane is porous, as I as I put it in the book at one point. Um, and these dogs are the the place that the that her mind kind of expands into the world. We all talk to our pets, you know. Everybody who has pets talks to their pets, and it just occurred to me, well, they would speak back. <laughs> uh, one of the things I think that's really amazing about this novel as we read it, it, it reads like these wonderful character studies, but as we read through it, the pieces of the plot just layer in and slice it in this kind of symphonic mode that I talked about earlier. Yeah. And it's really, really beautifully done, subtly done. It just is like a, a rug or something. Could you talk about creating the plot to this book? Um, well, it was definitely... A difficult process that came uh, after I had these characters uh, on the page and had written a lot about them. The the difficulty from a formal standpoint was that I was always writing from a particular character's point of view. It's all in third person, but it's all very close third person. So every scene is seen from someone's um, perspective. And that meant that anything that was going to happen, any sort of plot activity in the book, had to essentially be seen by a character that was not going to be a master narrator who swept in and moved you from point A to point B. So uh, I had to work a lot in thinking about what information the reader needed to carry them along, and um, but but not um, you know at no point turning it into a thriller because that's not really what I was after. So it's. To me, actually, a lot of people have said, "Oh, you know, it's a real page turner," which has surprised me in a way because it is because well because to, and I think that one of the reasons for that is that 
I at least, and not a lot of other writers I know, tend to write against what they think of as their own weakness. And I've always thought of plot as a weakness of mine. So if you think that that's your weakness, you you compensate for it in a way. And so in the end, I think I wound up with a book with a fair amount of plot, but that's because I didn't think I was very good at it. <laughs> now, when we talk about this plot, plot of this book, uh, I, I have a kind of a I'll admit that I have a kind of particular bee in my bonnet. Yeah. And, and that is is that I think that over the last maybe five to ten years, we're seeing the emergence of a new genre of fiction, mm-hmm. which I call economic fiction. Huh. And, and I think these are books that are where in the same way that uh, George Pelicanos writes crime fiction or yeah. Stephen King writes horror fiction, that – there's um, there's always characters and there's always a plot yeah. in there. But in the backdrop, in Stephen King, you've got supernatural horror. And George yeah. Pelicanos, it's crime. And here, it's the economy. And uh-huh. I think this is, in many ways, the apotheosis uh-huh. uh, of uh, economic fiction. Huh. So could you talk about just the intense uh, pervasiveness uh, of money in, in American culture in particular and, and where you think it might be taking American fiction? Yeah. Well, I don't know. I'd be curious to hear what other what what books you had in mind and thinking about that because you know, and on, on the spot they're not they don't pop into my head. But I, I do think that I, I've thought a lot um, over the, the last couple of years that there's a way in which at some point it seemed like the business pages had simply moved onto the front pages of the newspaper, so that the, that all of what we were really all the lead stories. I mean, it was the, it was either war. Or finance—that's what we were hearing about all the time. And the 24-hour uh, cable channels and the CNBC and this this sense that the economy and say the Dow Jones Industrial Average in particular had become a kind of national thermometer that we were all just sitting there. So you you have somebody, you know, Obama's got a press conference and in the corner there's the Dow Jones, like every word he's going to say is going to send the thermometer up or down and that's what we should all be worried about. Um, And I think there are probably a lot of factors in that. I mean, for one thing, the mutual fund industry and the way that retirements have been restructured uh, with 401ks means that half the country has ownership of stock, which was not the case 30 years ago. And so a lot of people who used to just think of stocks as something for the rich are now uh, interested. Um, But I do think that market values have become so pervasive. And that's one of the strange things to me about Republican ideology is that on the one hand, it it wants to preserve, quote unquote, preserve social mores at the same time as it's embracing a free market ideology that is the fastest corrosive agent on any kind of small c conservative. And also utterly amoral. Yeah. I mean, yes. beyond right. morality, no, no, it does not no, care. does who, not care. Yes. Yes. So um, I guess I would say that if, you know, I, I don't know what the other books you're thinking of are, but I mean, they're, if if you're a novelist and you want to figure out what it's like to be alive in the world and investigate that, that's the world we're living in. Um, also, I, I think, too, in, in this novel um, – there's a lot of politics, mm-hmm. and uh, there's one man 
Uh-huh. There's a name that pops up a couple times, and it's a, a really recognizable name, uh-huh. Mr. Grassley. <laughs> I'm, I'm guessing you're not his biggest fan. No, I mean, uh, I mean, within the context of the book, there's sort of a reason. I mean, he's he's the uh, now ranking member of the finance committee. He was the chair of it. Uh, so there's a scene in the book where Jeffrey Holland, the head of Union Atlantic, is lobbying about the bankruptcy bill, um, which seems to me was, was is a very good example of one of these moments where a very arcane set of rules surrounding how people file for bankruptcy was being debated in Washington. And, and the result was banks wanted this because they wanted to make it harder for people to erase credit card debt. Um, and it was going to be harder on consumers. And... Uh, it got passed, and the scene is here. He's lobbying Grassley, and he doesn't like the the tack that Grassley's taking. So there's a you know there was a a little bit of a mix. I mean, I, I wasn't I didn't put Alan Greenspan or anybody like that in the book, but um, there were the, the occasional references to to real politicians. Uh, I also, as an economic novel, one of the things I, I just loved all the scenes where we got to see. The, the hands on the levers and, and this kind of uh, and, and they are levers. It, it's a little push over here makes a big effect over here. And we talked about this before a little bit about the abstract yeah. feeling of this. Yeah. And it's kind of really fun to see this kind of geekish yeah. numbers stuff. Right, right. <laughs> well, I think the thing that's also comes in there is technology. So you've got these trading systems uh, that allow a trillion dollars a day uh, in transactions to fly across you know fiber optic lines with most people not even really knowing i mean even in the industry not actually doing it it's all automated most of this trading at this point so we are kind of captured by the technology that's that has been developed to do these things and the other thing that it gets at, and of course this is something the book is very much interested in, is that all this debate about finance now, so much of it is about we need more regulation, we need stricter rules. But the other overwhelming reality is that it's not just the rules you have, but it's the size of the thing being regulated and the number of people who are trying to regulate it. So you can have a rule book you know, five feet high, but if the industry you're regulating is so advanced and aggressive in its strategies, then the regulators are always paying catch up. So you don't have to just, you don't need just more regulation, you need to fund the regulators. And you need to fund regulators who are actually interested in regulating. Well, yes. No, indeed. You have to have a certain um, point of view. Yeah. Now, um, could you tell me what you're working on now or what, what, you're, what, is, what interests you in America right now? Uh, well, that's, that, that's, it's, I'm glad to have it asked that way because usually it's just the, which genre are you working in. But um, the, at the moment, the, um, I've started doing a lot of reading about water. Uh, water resources, um, because it seems like something that's anyway. That's what I'm reading about. Water is the next gasoline. Well, yeah, but um, so uh, who knows? I mean, I, you know, I just t- I, I I just read a lot of nonfiction uh, a lot of the time and um, uh, philosophy and other stuff. So the short answer is I don't know. I've got some characters that I'm working on that for another novel. Uh, I'm working on a short story at the moment. I've done some nonfiction recently. Uh, I just wrote a piece about Tim Geithner. So it's you know it's a mix at the moment, but in the in the medium term, it's work on a novel. 
uh, you said you wrote a piece about uh, Tim Geithner. That was Union Atlantic. No, right? no, 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 no. He's uh, <laughs> my New York Fed is chairman or president is uh, is an ungeithner like figure. I, I, I thought so. Thought, I that was my take as well. But yeah. still, uh, very interesting. Yeah, I've been speaking with Adam Hazlett. His new novel is Union Atlantic. Thank you for joining me, Adam. Thanks for having me. It was fun. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.